Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. This episode, we're talking to Professor Justin Cotty about the success and stability of social housing in Vienna and Helsinki, and comparing their positive record against the decline of social housing programs in many other cities and countries where it once played a much larger role in the housing market. A good chunk of this conversation is about what sets Vienna and Helsinki's programs apart and what we can learn from their unique approaches. But building on our episode about France's social housing program last year, we also wanted to spend a lot of our time talking about social housing more generally and getting a better understanding of all the different forms it can take and how it's planned, financed, built, and operated. That obviously has really important implications for places like California that are looking at planning their own social housing programs. I think most of us in North America have a fairly narrow and shallow understanding of how social housing really works in other parts of the world, and I certainly include myself in that assessment, and Justin ended up being the perfect person to talk about it with. He's based in Vienna, and that's his expertise, so that's where we focus most of our time. But even without much discussion of Helsinki, this episode is rich with information and insights about how world-class social housing programs operate, and that is reflected by the exceptional length of this episode, but I really think it gives us in the U.S. and elsewhere a whole lot to chew on. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, with production support from Claudia Bustamante and Jason Sutasia. As always, feedback and show ideas can go to me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Now let's get to our conversation with Professor Justin Cotty. Justin Cotty is an assistant professor at the Vienna University of Technology, and he's here to talk about his research on social housing in Vienna, Austria, and Helsinki, Finland, and the comparative success and stability of these two cities' social housing programs compared to others around the world. Justin, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Hello, thank you. And my co-host is Pavo Monkinen. Hey, Pavo. Hey, Shane. How you doing? Justin, I'm so glad you're here to talk about this paper and Vienna's social housing policy. There's a lot of interest in California about Vienna in particular. And I also wanted to thank you for your work as associate editor of the International Journal for Housing Policy because it's a it's a cool journal and, and I'm sure it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is, but it's worth it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So as always, we start by asking for a quick tour of uh, our, our guests' hometown or where they're living. I think, Justin, you're going to give us a tour of Vienna, and this is especially appropriate because Pavo is going to be in Europe next year and might be visiting and actually going on this tour. So where do you want to show him? Well, yeah. Um, so welcome to Vienna. <laughs> um, so I think one of the places that everyone interested in housing in particular should visit here is um, a very famous social housing estate, which is called Karl Marxhof. And uh, it's uh, interesting for the fact that it's one of the, or even the largest residential building in Europe. So it's uh, mm. over one kilometer long and um, has many, many social housing units in there. And it was built in the 1920s and yeah, exists still then and is uh, one important part of the social housing stock in the city. I would also take you to uh, one of the largest green spaces in the city, which is called Prater. I'm not sure how to translate this uh, to English, um, so it's just a German term. It's um, next to a large amusement park quite in the city center and has uh, one of the largest inner city green spaces. 
and uh, was actually, I think, built in the or opened for the public uh, in the late 19th century. And uh, I would also take you to um, a place called Danube Island, um, which is very another uh, very uh, important site in Vienna. It's um, an artificially built island along the Danube, and which was built in the 1970s and is a large recreational area in the city. And yeah, it's kind of a I think also representative of a very very socially oriented urban planning approach that has been for long quite important in Vienna. No cars there either, if I'm if I'm remembering it's, right. Yeah, there are no cars there, and there are also uh, no buildings there. So it's just recreational space. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah. Yeah. it's I was in I was in Vienna four or five years ago, and I've I visited all of these things. Actually, they're some of my favorite parts. <laughs> But Shane, uh, you, the, d- you didn't you didn't go to the Hunterwasser social I, housing I hadn't, estate? Hadn't even heard of it. I'm I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I definitely saw Karl Marx off, but I think just kind of riding by on the train. Mm. Uh, my my comment on that is I think Mike Eliason, uh, who's done a lot of work on single stair buildings, specifically mentions that in a report he did for the city of Vancouver, how that building, despite its kilometer long length, is actually a bunch of like sequential point access block single stair mm. buildings it's not this you know long corridor building we would right. think of for a long building built in the u.s yeah the danube island was amazing no cars just biking all along it it was great and that uh the prater park or whatever it was called i remember walking through the amusement park and just the the very long stretch people biking walking uh riding horses down down mm-hmm. the road no cars there either yeah this was this is exactly the tour i needed i guess <laughs> can i add one more site yes. um so more for the housing nerds uh, among you um so there is a there's a street um or like an area in the city which is uh, originally called the ring road of the proletariat uh, which was also part of the <laughs> social housing program in the 1920s where the socialist party was kind of trying to build an alternative kind of ring road or Ringstraße as it's called in German. And so not uh, one for the bourgeoisie, but one for the proletariat. So this is one area where there is a lot of social housing um, close to the inner city. So that was actually also be uh, a site where I would take you. But so it was a a tram-based ring road, not a car-based ring road, I assume. Um, it was a car-based ring road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So the yeah. proletariat had cars in the 1920s. Uh, <laughs> not sure. It was aspirational. So the topic of our conversation today is your article with Johanna Lilius, published late last year in Housing Studies. And the title of this is The Remarkable Stability of Social Housing in Vienna and Helsinki, a Multidimensional Analysis. The title of our podcast will likely reflect this, but we're going to focus more on Vienna for this conversation because that's Justin's expertise, uh, but we'll definitely discuss some of the attributes of both Vienna and Helsinki's social housing programs that set them apart and may help explain why they've been so successful compared to many other cities in other countries. And maybe we'll be able to have Johanna on in a future episode to talk more about Helsinki. So Justin, I want to begin by defining one part of your article's title, the social housing aspect and contextualizing the other, which is the remarkable stability. So we'll start with the definition of social housing, which I think is especially important for our U.S. and maybe just North American listeners generally, because social housing is so much less common here than in many other rich countries. In your paper, you say there's no single generally accepted definition of social housing, 
And it isn't even a formal like legal category of housing in some countries. It's often used as more of a shorthand. But for the purposes of your article and for this discussion, when you talk about social housing, what is that shorthand referring to or what images should it conjure in our minds? I guess another way of putting this is what criteria do you use to classify homes as social housing or not social housing? Yes, thank you for this. So for us as housing researchers, this is certainly a challenge, right? So because um, it's such a a contextually specific term, right? So it means that different things in different countries and different cities sometimes even. And in our paper, there was another challenge um, because we wanted to do a comparative piece. So comparing two cities in two different countries. And um, we soon mm-hmm. realized that there is no single definition that kind of fits both. I mean, there, there are people that say, well, you know, social housing means so such different things in different contexts so there's actually no way to compare this i think this is kind of an extreme position to take because um, if you kind of follow this argument further then most comparative housing research could not be done um, <laughs> right. so we kind of uh, <laughs> we kind of adopted a more middle middle ground approach you could say um, and say what we can say is we can have a let's say a more abstract definition of social housing that fits different countries or different cities um, but what we also need in addition to that is kind of uh, add more context specific elements that are then specific to the particular cities and what we did is we kind of took one pretty common definition, abstract definition in the literature, which basically says that social housing means rental housing that is um, operated uh, on the basis of meeting housing needs and not primarily for um, maximizing profit for the landlord. That's, of course, very, very, very general, right? Um, But it kind of helped us to, on general level, kind of grasp what social housing means in Finland and in Austria. And uh, we kind of added more details than to these when we looked at the two cases. And then we can already see that uh, in the Vienna case, for example, it uh, social housing means also housing that is provided by particular provider types. So either by the city or by non-profit or as they are called limited profit housing associations i think we'll talk more about this later still yeah um and in the finnish case it's not about a particular provider type that kind of defines social housing but it's more about a particular subsidy program so in the finnish context social housing means that there is a particular subsidy scheme that is um, used by the landlords and Once they use that, it can be defined as social housing. Yeah, I was curious about uh, the definition you chose, this idea of operated on the basis of meeting need and not primarily to make a profit. Because I think, you know, housing as an investment and a consumption good, sometimes uh, these, these two things get blurred and that's an issue. But on the other hand, like housing operated to make a profit also meets a housing need. So I wonder whether... I don't know. I wonder whether you worried about this distinction or not. Yeah, I think that's Probably a very not good a question. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yes, uh, it worried us to some extent, but then on the other hand, what we were actually looking for on this more abstract level was um, a more general definition that kind of fitted both our cases, and uh, that's right. what what the definition that we that we chose there did. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. right. I mean, these these two kind of um, well, th- these two functions of housing they often overlap, right? And and I think one one way to we might come back to this, but I think one way to think about it as well might be that social housing is housing that is priced at a level that it could not have been built without some kind of public support, if that makes sense. Although, I mean, I guess so for me, the the issue is like thinking about the intention of someone's action yeah. Yeah. to me is less important than the outcome of the action. And so like, yeah. you know, in the U.S., 50 years ago, there was a lot of housing being built. Housing was relatively affordable. And, you know, a bunch all the people building the housing perhaps were a big a bunch of jerks. But, like, who cares, right? And so this idea that, you know, if the goal is pure, then the outcome's going to be pure? I don't know. Uh, yeah. And also, like, I mean, I think for the for the the policy discourse, there's this idea that we'll get into, which is that if we just didn't have developer profits, housing would be affordable. And so that's something that's very curious to both mm. of us, I think, about mm-hmm. the case of Vienna, because I don't think in California, if you if you remove developer profits, I don't think the house, <laughs> new housing would be extremely affordable, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good point. Yeah. I mean, to your, we're just going to keep going on a digression here <laughs> at the very beginning, but I mean, I think this is interesting. We'll see how much how much stays here. But there's to your point, Pavo, like or or kind of counter to your point. That housing that was built in the 50s and 60s and 70s, if it had been social housing, you know, it wouldn't be renting for so much today in California or in Los Angeles, perhaps, because it would have had different rules set to it where when the circumstances changed, the owners couldn't just charge as much as they liked. And so there's still some difference there, even if the immediate, you know, when it's built, it's not necessarily, you know, all that different. Okay. Right. Well, I have another counter argument. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. So I, I do want to be uh, to you know make sure we we talk about this in a U.S. context as well. And I said social housing I think is relatively rare here in the U.S., but we do have some kinds of housing that we might categorize as either non-market based or subsidized or perhaps social housing. We have about two million homes that are, exist right now that were funded by the low income housing tax credit. And uh, they have to be rented at below market rates to low income households for at least their first 30 years of operation. Usually we have another million or so public housing units that were mostly built decades ago. And those are reserved for for very poor households and owned by the government mostly. Justin, just so like I understand how you're thinking about this. Those are probably social housing by your definition, right? Well, I mean, if you just pick this general definition that we pick to kind of fit both our cases in there. I would say those can be considered social housing, but then, I mean, if you take a more, let's say, restrictive definition and, I mean, there are people and I think that they have a point that they say it's not just, you know, social housing is not just about housing that is kind of operated on the basis of need and not just profit, but they also say it needs a specific provider type. So it needs, for example, either non-profits mm. or it needs... um municipalities or cities or some kind of state actor and in that sense i think there is a question whether housing that is kind of funded through low-income housing tax credit and then 
is basically provided by private landlords, whether this can right. be counted as social housing. I mean, I think yeah, that's, that's a good it, point. It, yeah, I, I, it, it's a for it's profits a, are building them in most cases. So. Exactly. I mean, I think that it, there's an interesting parallel here to the German case, right? So social housing in Germany, uh, for most parts, has been provided by private landlords that were subsidized and then a bit similar to the low-income housing tax credit um, housing that was subsidized through these programs was part of social housing stock for a limited period of time. And then after the subsidies ran out, they returned back to the private market. Mm -hmm. right? So I think there is some debate yeah. also within the housing studies community whether this can be counted as social housing or not. But I think it's an interesting parallel to the US case. Yeah. So last year, we did a great interview on social housing with Magda Maui, but that one was focused on France. And something we didn't really do in that conversation all that much was get into the details of how social housing is financed and built and operated. And I do want to make sure that we do a bunch of that here, especially since we've got a few different programs that we can compare and contrast. Putting my cards on the table here, one reason I want to do this is because in the US and Canada, I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions about social housing and a real lack of imagination about the different forms that it can take. It sometimes feels like people here just imagine social housing is like U.S. public or nonprofit housing, but just better funded. And I don't think that's a very accurate or useful depiction. You happen to have a great table in your paper comparing some of the key features of the social housing programs in Vienna and Helsinki. And I'd love to walk through at least uh, the Vienna column of the table and explore how social housing in Vienna works in its different forms. So... There's like six different dimensions here. You've got, you know, the definitional characteristic, the providers, whether a down payment is required to enter, whether the social housing units remain in the social housing stock permanently or for a limited time only, how much cheaper social housing is than private renting, and whether there are upper income limits or to what extent there are upper income limits for tenants to participate in social housing. I guess we can start with providers. In Vienna, tell us a little bit more about the providers of social housing, and maybe we can combine this with uh, talking about the difference between council housing and limited profit housing association housing. Yes, thank you. So one of the important points to know here is that in Vienna, there are these two providers that you just mentioned. It's either the city that provides, as we call, council housing, or it's limited profit housing associations that provide limited profit housing association housing. In terms of size, they are yeah, about the same size. So the, both of them account for approximately half of the social housing stock. And the social housing stock is about 40% of the overall housing stock in Vienna, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So each accounts for about 20% of the overall stock. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the city is pretty straightforward to understand. So that's the municipality in this case that uh, that is uh, that works or that acts as a provider. Limited profit housing association is perhaps not so such a familiar term or uh, concept. It's yeah, I think it's pretty unique to the Austrian context. Mm -hmm. It's something similar to non-profit housing, but then it's also again pretty context specific so basically what limited housing profit associations are uh, in austria is uh, those are private providers uh, that operate uh, on the basis of meeting housing need so their primary goal is to provide affordable housing for their residents 
and the kind of the limited profit part of their name already tells this that they are allowed to make some profit but only very limited profit and so they they have become the most important in in terms of the nationwide uh, in Austria they have become the most important provider um of social housing and something i i wasn't clear on from the paper was whether like every project has its own limited profit housing association or whether it's, you know, a, a smaller number of them that are responsible for building lots of different housing over time, which, which is the situation there? Yeah. So it's, 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 it's the second. Um, so, okay. cause, cause I could imagine them being confused with like cooperatives where you just get together a bunch of prospective homeowners who kind of build a project and they, they all own it. But they just own that that building, and it's just their you know their association for that one building. So this is a, a very different model. Yeah, I mean, what is important to know is that th th there is a variety in sizes uh, between the different limited profit housing associations. So there are mm -hmm. some that are quite big, and there is also others that are smaller. I mean, the biggest ones are like really big players in the market. So they are like the the biggest uh, has like 150,000 housing units in Austria. So it's, wow. it's really, it's, it's, wow. it's a huge player, but there's, there's also others that have like one or two buildings, right? So it's, uh, you, right. you, you cannot generalize about it, but I think the easiest way to understand this is also to kind of contextualize and understand how they emerged historically. And historically they did emerge out of um, the idea of, cooperative housing of people coming together and saying we want to establish an alternative to private market housing and that was something that started uh, around the beginning of the 20th century and was really kind of a bottom-up movement and over the course of the 20th century kind of got incorporated more and more into you could say legalized and institutionalized forms of provision and uh, uh, yeah, was kind of formalized also through uh, laws and became yeah one very important part of how the social housing system in, in Austria works. I'm trying to place limited profit housing associations in a U.S. context. And I think it seems like it might be fair to just compare them to our nonprofit builders because yeah. they, they have developer fees. They, they're not losing money. It's just they have they're not, you know, expecting uh certain percentage return on investment exactly it's just they have a flat fee and maybe it's a little different in vienna where there's a, a flat percentage kind of like how a lot of utilities operate where they can make a five percent profit but no more but they, mm -hmm. they can always make that five percent whatever they spend so maybe just we can just think of them as non-profits here but kind of on a in some in some cases on a much larger scale and a little mm -hmm. more institutionalized in in vienna or in austria i did want to bring up here could you tell us a little bit about the down payment requirement uh, for the limited profit housing association housing in Vienna? Because that seems like a, an important barrier. And I'm curious how much of a barrier it really is to households. Because on the one hand, you, you point out that limited profit housing rents for about 30% less than housing on the, on the private rental market, but you also have to pay some kind of upfront cost. And I, I wonder you know, how many people can't access this housing type because of that. Yeah, so down payments are an important part of understanding limited profit housing in, in Vienna. The easiest way to 
kind of grasp what this is about is by looking at uh, the financing of new projects in limited housing, uh, limited profit housing. So if a new limited profit housing project is built, then there are usually four pillars of financing. The first is a subsidy that the housing association gets from the city. The second part is a loan that it takes out from a private bank. The third one is equity that it takes from their own revenues. And the last part is the tenant down payment. And the tenant down payment, mm -hmm. the idea is that it accounts uh, for a share of the major costs of production, which is land, construction, and financing costs. So in the past, these down payments were rather low and were not really a large barrier. They were there, uh, but they were not a huge barrier financially. Um, they increased particularly beginning in the, in the late 1990s, uh, early 2000s, and then also in, uh, in, the, in the decade afterwards, especially driven by um, land costs. Because the cost for land got so much uh, more expensive. And then we were at a situation in around 2009 where there is an interesting study that came out that looked at the average down payment that people have to pay that want to, en that want to enter limited profit housing in the city. So this study found that on average, potential residents have to pay 500 euros per square meter in down payments upfront before they can enter the unit. So if you say as a family, um, you want to rent an apartment of, let's say, 100 square meters, then you would need 50,000 euros mm, yeah. basically upfront to pay. Pretty significant. Term. Yeah. yeah, that that's quite that's quite some money. I mean, there are subsidy programs by the city that help tenants. So there are low cost loans that that people could take out from the city, but still, this was this was quite a significant financial barrier, and is one explanation why, if you look at the social housing stock in Vienna and compare, let's say, the average income in city-owned council housing and limited profit-owned housing, then traditionally the limited profit housing is much more oriented towards the middle class and more people with with more financial resources. Yeah. And I think the down payment explains a part of that. Yeah, and I think we'll probably come more to council housing a little bit and some of its history because it relates very much to this, you know, discussion of the stability of social housing in Vienna. I did just want to note for the listeners that council housing is cheaper than limited profit housing in Vienna. As I mentioned, limited profit housing is about 30% cheaper than private rented dwellings. Council housing is about 60% cheaper. So it is very, very inexpensive. And this is the stuff that is city owned. We'll also come to the, the income limits. We have a separate question about that. So I'll save that for later. I did want to quickly just ask about the permanency of social housing in Vienna specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It seems like with the exception of a, a kind of federal government-led sale a decade or two ago, that social housing in Vienna is pretty hard to convert to you know, private ownership. Yes, that's true. So the city-owned council housing stock has remained almost untouched 
there have been very few units that have been sold, but those account for some some hundred units uh, compared to a stock that that includes like two hundred and twenty thousand units. Right, so basically, um, mm-hmm. all the units that were part, yeah, very negligible. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. In the limited profit housing stock, some units um, have been sold, particularly uh, through a right to buy program. So, where sitting tenants were offered the unit and they could kind of buy it and then become homeowners. Mm, and also, some limited profit housing associations uh, were sold, particularly those owned by the federal government in the early 2000s. But then what I think is important and probably what you're also trying to get at is the intention of both council housing and limited profit housing in, in Austria and also in Vienna is that once you build this housing, the general idea is that it stays in the social housing stock permanently mm-hmm. or forever, which I think is an interesting difference also in terms of how social housing works uh, in Vienna compared to other places also in Europe, because there are places, for example, like Germany, where social housing is often working in a way that it, yeah that private landlords get subsidies and then after like 30, 35 years, the subsidy period ends and then it returns to the private market. Similar to the low-income housing tax credit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is how the low-income housing tax credit yeah. program works. Yeah, and the time limit varies state to state. It's it's thirty years in most places. It's fifty-five years in California and a few others. Okay, we can move on from there. And I think another contrast to the U.S. might be interesting here, and this is on subsidies. So you note that. of new construction in Austria between 1992 and 2002 received some kind of subsidies, and that had declined to 49% of new construction for 2007 to 2017. I imagine that that is at least partly explained by the stop that was put to new council housing construction, that prohibition or or stop had been in place for most of the 2000s and the 2010s, and as, uh, as your article talks about, has recently come back. But what I'm really curious about is what form those subsidies take. Here in the U.S., projects that receive subsidies tend to be deeply affordable and entirely reserved for low-income households. So each unit requires very deep, large subsidies on the order of several hundred thousand dollars, certainly in California, given our, our construction costs. So someone might hear that half of Austria's new homes are subsidized and think they're all being paid for almost entirely with public funds with very little contribution from private sources. Maybe that is the case, but it's my impression that Austria's subsidies tend to be wide, but relatively shallow, where they help a lot of projects, but they're not necessarily accounting for most of their funding at the project or at the unit level. Whereas in the US, our supply side subsidies, like that low-income housing tax credit, tend to be deep, but very narrowly focused on a small share of the new construction market. Does that sound right to you? And what else can you tell us about the different forms that housing subsidies take in Vienna, especially on the tenant side and on that supply side for funding new construction? Yeah, so I think what is important, if you look at subsidies and types of subsidies that went to housing and how they developed over the, let's say, last 20, 30 years, then you see one important shift internationally. You see that in the post-war period, 60s, 70s, 
most of the subsidies in many countries were granted as so-called object side subsidies. So there were basically, there was subsidies granted by public authorities so that the production of housing is becoming cheaper. What you see since yeah. the and We 80s, would call those supply side subsidies in the US just for our yeah. listeners. Yeah. So, and what you see since the 80s, 90s in many contexts, and I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the United States is, is, is a good example for that, is that increasingly there is a shift from these supply side subsidies towards subject side subsidies, or as you could also um, call them housing benefits, which basically were the, the idea then shifts and is no longer that the production of housing is subsidized so that it becomes cheaper, but the tenants or the residents are subsidized so that they can afford housing, usually housing that is provided by the private market. If you look at the Austrian and the Vienna context, I think it's quite interesting that this is quite an outlier here. Because uh, if you look, for example, at the European Union, um, I think we have the statistic in, in the paper. So the share of, of subsidies that goes to uh, supply-side subsidies uh, in the European Union is somewhere around 26% of all subsidies that go to housing at the moment. And uh, in Austria, it's somewhere around 69%. Right. So it's much higher. There is, yeah. uh, compared to many European countries, at least, the focus on supporting the production of inexpensive housing and not supporting tenants in affording market rate housing is a much more uh, common story here. That is also uh, the case in Vienna. So most of the subsidies are granted for. Uh, yeah, as you say, supply-side subsidies, there is a very small share that goes into supporting tenants. And um, there is also a share of subsidies, if you kind of look at the overall sub, uh, subsidy budget, that goes into renovation, right? So that's another important part. Housing providers can also take out subsidies for that. And what is also important to know about the subsidy system, though, and I think you you kind of indicated that in, in your question already, is the usual financing for a social housing project in, in Vienna draws on different sources of finance. So the subsidies from the state make up one important part, but usually they do not account for more than, let's say, one third of the overall financing costs. Um, and even more, most of these subsidies are actually provided as low-cost loans. So they're not provided as lump sums that basically are transferred from the state to the provider, but are provided in a way that the housing provider gets this money as a loan and over time pays it back to the state, including interest. So for the state, it actually, well, it's, it's kind of a business case, right? They even make money with this, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, and th there's, th especially in limited profit housing, there is an important role also for private banks that also provide loans to the, uh, to the associations, uh, and I think we talked about this before. There's also tenants that pay a certain contribution. So there's different sources of finance. And um, I think actually we also hinted that in our paper, we also believe that that is an important part of explaining the stability of the social housing sector in cases like Vienna. Because it, politically, 
given if you have so many different sources of finance, politically, it becomes much more complicated for one stakeholder, like the city or the federal government to say, well, let's just get rid of social housing, because the social housing providers have so many different sources of finance that they could then just mm. use instead. So yeah. I think also in that sense, it's interesting to think about how the financing works there. The, the case for complexity. Um, exactly. One, one yeah. question about, so there's these subsidized loans. Is there an unlimited supply of subsidized loans or is there, are these, are these limited profit associations competing to get these subsidized loans? Yeah, they're competing. And I think that's also a, a very important part of how the subsidy system works that we do not highlight sufficiently in the paper, I think. So thanks for bringing this up. Because in Vienna, there is um, an instrument which is called housing provider competition, if you translate it literally. So basically, whenever the mm -hmm. city gives subsidies for a project, um, providers have to hand in their proposal, what they want to build. And right. so basically, this includes, so there are like predefined pillars, uh, what kind of criteria every project has to fulfill. Mm -hmm. And so that includes architectural quality it includes uh, affordability it includes ecological dimensions and um, so mm -hmm. and whoever puts forth the best project gets the subsidies and mm -hmm. that is i think a very interesting instrument because what it actually does is that it makes the providers kind of compete over quality and that's i right. think a very interesting instrument to also understand why so much of social housing that is constructed in Vienna is of such high quality. Mm -hmm. I think this is really important too, because just as a distinction, if I'm hearing you correctly, Justin, and based on my recollection of how Vienna builds a lot of its housing, what you're saying is that Vienna, like the city, may have acquired a site, it may have already owned a site, but then it's sort of puts out a competition for that location and people can submit a proposal, you know, meeting all of these different dimensions and, and trying to outcompete other people. Is that how it works in Vienna? Because here in the US, it's it's very different where you basically have individual builders. Let's just limit ourselves to the low-income housing tax credit builders for now. They have to go there, find their own site. They come up with their own plan and then they just submit their proposal for their location. No one else can even submit anything because they're the only ones who own it. So there's no competition in that sense. There's only competition once you've submitted your proposal for people who have other sites that they also want to build. And maybe, you know, you have to outcompete them for the grants or the tax credits. Is is the way I described it for Vienna, though, where it's the, the city-owned or government-owned site that is then sort of bidded out almost or, or put up for a competition? Is that how it works in Vienna? Yes, that how it, uh, that's how it works usually. And often part of the mm -hmm. subsidy that the city then provides is also that it sells the land at lower price than uh, to, to the provider than uh, it would be sold mm -hmm. if it would be sold on the private market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's particularly important for limited profit housing associations because land prices here have also become a problem uh, mm -hmm. for the provision of social housing units and they have become a problem particularly because there is a legally defined limit how much land can cost so that limited profit housing associations can still use subsidies to build new units there 
And I think it's actually, it's very, it's, it's, it's quite a smart rule because what, what you want to do with that is that you want to make sure that the landowners kind of don't, well, speculate with land and sell it to limited housing profit association, limited profit housing associations at a very high price. And then the government or the city has to pay a very high subsidy so that still the housing that is right. built there is kind of uh, affordable. So to avoid that, they say, well, you cannot uh, buy land for more than 200 euros per square meter. Um, but then given that land prices have increased so much, the kind of the available land at that price has become very scarce. So in, in that sense, the city is increasingly using kind of... Uh, their own the land that they own uh, and then mm. kind of try to sell this to providers at lower price and so with that kind of circumvent this legally set maximum limit of land prices and i think one more clarification here is this mostly land that vienna already owns or is it also going out and acquiring land because i think you know in in the u.s context our cities tend not to own very much land uh, i know in your paper you wrote how Helsinki owns 64% of of the land in the city and so they got a lot of land to work with to kind of give away when they want to that's not so much of an option here in the US in most places but the, i think there's two things to say about this in vienna the first thing is we don't know so much right so it's 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 really not very transparent right so the city um is very secretive about this mm -hmm. and probably for good reasons but the, the other thing is that uh, what we do know is that uh Vienna does not own as much as Helsinki, but we also know that they are trying to acquire more. But um, there's also, I think, a, a fair amount of critique that the city is giving away and selling a lot of land that they own and um, not using other ways of kind of making sure that this land is used and especially what kind of the critique is here that the city could could also kind of continue ownership owning this mm. land and then mm. lease it to yeah. to to providers and not not sell it or, or give it to them right so i think right. that's that in, in terms of kind of keeping control of that land over time also yeah so they don't end up having to buy it again in a hundred years or something exactly Okay, so uh, I said at the very beginning that we were going to define social housing and then talk <laughs> about its remarkable stability. I think we've done a pretty good job of defining more than halfway through our interview here. So let's go all the way back and contextualize this, what you call remarkable stability of social housing in Vienna and Helsinki. As you mentioned, a rather large stock of social housing has stuck around for several generations now in both cities. And this is remarkable because it's not the experience of many cities. Plenty of cities and countries built lots of social housing in the post-World War II era. But since around the 1980s, the stock has been in decline in most of those places. So just as a general overview, in what ways has social housing been eroded or degraded in other cities and countries? And how big are the losses that we're talking about here? Yes, so I think what we kind of wanted to highlight with the paper is that these cities are really outliers. If you look at the international experience, particularly in the European context, where social housing used to be much bigger in most countries and cities in, let's say, the 1970s or 80s. And I think there are some iconic cases that are often discussed. The United Kingdom is certainly one of them. If you, for example, look at the 
kind of the high time of of council housing in the United Kingdom. There was a time when it accounted for almost one third of all housing units in the country. And by now it's less than 20% and in pretty steep decline following pretty aggressive measures of privatization starting in the 1980s and uh, a, yeah. a very um, intensive promotion of other 10 years, particularly home ownership since then. I mean, I think that's a that's an exceptional and really interesting case. We'll have to have an episode on it. But just to yeah. kind of my understanding of what happened there was, you know, this was during the Thatcher administration. It wasn't necessarily even entirely about the housing or about the budget. It was just like government is bad and we don't want government owning things. And so we're going to kind of get rid of this out of our ownership. And they gave the residents of these council housing units the opportunity to buy the homes at, I, I think it was well under half of what their market value would be. And, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of people took advantage of that. You'd be kind of foolish not to. But then, you know, they effectively captured all of those, the difference between what they paid and the market value and that affordability is just kind of permanently lost for all of those homes. Yeah, and I think maybe to to add to this, I think the kind of the it's quite perverse what happened in the United Kingdom because if you look at what happened with these units over time, then there is a very interesting recent study that found, for example, that forty percent of the units that were sold since the nineteen eighties for the right to buy program are now rented on the private rental market. Often. Mm-hmm. Um, these units are not affordable to the tenants. So the state, again, pays huge amounts of housing benefits (laughs) to private landlords that it did not have to pay in the past to keep these houses affordable. So in many different ways, I think this is a very important case to study in terms of understanding policy failure and uh, and lots of other things. I mean, I think that the United Kingdom is, is kind of, it's an iconic and often discussed case but there's there's other cases in Europe that, are, that show similar trajectories if you look at Germany for example Germany also had a social housing stock which was larger than 20% at some point and is now way below 10% one of the countries with the largest social housing stocks is the Netherlands historically at some point the country had more than 40% of their housing in social housing and now has below 30% so also there the decline has been pretty steep since the 1990s and i mean here we are talking about you know national housing stocks right so a 10% change there is really is really a lot of yeah. a lot of units right i mean yeah. because maybe 10% doesn't sound so much but it's 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 quite something right and I mean, those are those are kind of country level statistics, but I think uh, you can also we know also that similar things happen at the city level. Often, they were even more uh, more pronounced there because often social housing was concentrated in cities. Berlin, for example, I think is a very interesting case. So Berlin, at the beginning of the 1990s, had more than 30% of their uh, housing in the social housing stock. Now it has uh, about 9%, right? So a huge shift there also. And uh, Amsterdam is another case to mention, perhaps, which at some point had more than 60% of their housing in social housing and now has uh, about 47%. Again, also here, uh, quite uh, quite a huge decline. And I think in that sense, if you look at Vienna and Helsinki, where 
social housing has basically over the last 30 years remained stable, that was something that we wanted to highlight with the paper because that's mm. just really kind of going against uh, mm-hmm. against the, 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 the broader the broader trend that seems to dominate most of the context, at least in, in Europe, but also seems to kind of dominate most of the debate around social housing. And that's what we kind of wanted also to question. Yeah. And you make an interesting point in the article that on the one hand, every country has a unique origin story for their social housing programs. They were established for a variety of purposes. They were intended to benefit different groups of people and projects were financed and built and managed in different ways. But on the other hand, the decline of social housing looked pretty similar. You know, the the exact mechanisms varied, but it was pretty similar everywhere it occurred. And I'd like to come back to what made Vienna and Helsinki's programs so resilient. But let's first talk about the attributes of the programs where social housing has declined. So Justin, in your paper, you identify four big shifts that led to this general decline in social housing across so many places. Could you tell us about what those are? And if you can just define each and give a quick explanation of them? Yes, sure. So the first very obvious dimension that we looked at was a declining sector size. So basically a relative Mm -hmm. decline in social housing compared to other tenures. And if you look at kind of real world developments, that was particularly home ownership over the last 20, 30 years. But also kind of declining sector size also means uh, for us, not just a relative decline, but also an absolute decline of the stock, which can happen due to different reasons, be it privatization that we just talked about, but it can also, of course, involve demolition, something that probably rings the bell for some US listeners. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second dimension that we looked at was stock privatization. So basically a transfer of units to private owners that can again happen through different mechanisms it can either be through selling directly to tenants through a right to buy as we call it or it can also for example uh, be through uh, like it happened in berlin like so-called on block sales so where whole housing estates are sold to investors but it can also be again this happened in the german context uh, but also in other contexts be through the conversion of owners or providers from former public or non-profit entities into private companies so basically you, you don't sell the unit but you kind of convert the owner from a non-profit to a profit, for-profit owner and through that also uh, stock gets lost and privatized and the third dimension for us includes a shift in housing production so if you think about a decline of social housing, we think that it's important to also see that social housing, the kind of the position of social housing in overall housing production has shifted in many countries. And right. yeah, and that is related commonly through a shift from in subsidies from supply side subsidies to subject side subsidies. And I think that's something that you can see, see in many countries. And so, and the, the fourth dimension is that for us that is the question of residualization so that the social housing stock becomes more residual what that means is that the socioeconomic profile of the tenure becomes more dominated by poorer households so basically to put it in other terms the tenure is increasingly catering to lower income households and that can either be an intentional policy right 
like it happened in the Dutch context, for example, in the Netherlands, but it can also be an unintended side effect, of course, of other, other policy decisions. One more remark about this, what we wanted to do with kind of distinguishing these four dimensions was to have a more complete picture of what social housing decline means, because if we look at how people understand it, particularly in the academic literature, we see that people use different concepts and refer to different things, and some use it to say, well, you know, the absolute size of the sector has declined. Others say, well, you know, stock has been privatized. Again, others say, well, you know, housing production has shifted. And so we thought, well, mm -hmm. what we have to do is to arrive at a more comprehensive understanding. We have to look at all these dimensions together. That was the intention of having this multidimensional framework. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it is helpful and the, the first two concepts, declining sector size and stock privatization, I think are fairly straightforward, but I did feel like the other two were a little more nuanced and, and worth exploring further. So shifting housing production was the third change. And we've kind of already talked about this in the context of supply side versus demand side subsidies. So I, I don't think we need to get into a ton of detail here. I will note that we have a conversation about sort of the balance between supply side and demand side policies or subsidies or interventions with Diego Hill in our episode about uh, Chile's housing policies and kind of the neoliberal turn that they took. And I just kind of want to reiterate the need for a balance between those two things and maybe how a lot of places have shifted too far in the direction of demand side policies like housing vouchers and that kind of thing. And I really think we should like pay a lot of attention to the fact that Vienna has such a higher share of its housing subsidies going toward, you know, object side, supply side, toward actually building housing and housing that the market just would not build by itself because it couldn't earn a profit at the rents that are being charged. The fourth trend, though, is one I think we talk less about. This is residualization, and that's the shift in policy away from programs with maybe broad eligibility requirements and toward those that are much narrower and usually only for lower income households. In the US, we certainly see this in the means testing of you know just about everything. And in our rental housing sector, virtually all resources are targeted at households earning around 60% of area median income or less. I think at some level, this sounds very sensible. Like why wouldn't you try to allocate limited public resources to the people with the greatest need? But there are serious downsides to this approach as well. And I was hoping you could talk about what residualization has looked like in the context of social housing in these different countries and how residualization has undermined or you think it has undermined both the function of and the political support for social housing. And maybe we can uh, or I can ask Pavo to kind of tie this to some of our experience here in the U.S. with, with public housing and other things, too. Yeah, great question here. I think to start with, it's probably important to understand that historically, I think there is like two different ways how housing systems have developed. And there is one type of housing system, which is more common in the European, West European context, particularly in cases like Austria, the Netherlands, uh, but also Germany to some extent, where historically the social housing stock has been quite large and has been catering not just to lower income households, but also to middle and even some higher income uh, households. So it was meant as a 
broader sector that is not just reserved for the poorest of the poor. There's other contexts, more liberal market contexts. Uh, the United States, Australia, often mentioned in this respect, where sectors like public housing or social housing never kind of uh, had the same size, like in cases like Austria and the Netherlands, and were kind of always playing a more marginal role. Mm-hmm. This trend of residualization, you could, uh, to some extent, I think, define as a, a process where countries that used to have larger social housing stocks in the past kind of shift more towards this model of liberal housing markets and shift more towards a model where social housing is reserved for those in greatest need on the housing market. And of course, I think, as you mentioned in your question, from a public policy perspective, especially if you think about efficiency of public uh, funds, then you, you, first of all, you would say, well, isn't this a great idea to just have have it for, for those who really need it? Um, but what we see historically from social housing, but I think also from social policy more broadly, is that one of the problematic things about this approach to social policy is that it can very quickly happen that if you have a means-tested, very small policy that's targeted to just those in greatest need, one of the things that you lose quite quickly is political support, right? It becomes very... uh very easy to further dismantle this program because there's not so many people benefiting from it. And in particular, then it's uh, often people that that don't have a lot of power in the political game, right? And uh, so, I mean, I think the, the Austrian case is, again, interesting to look at here because, so for example, if you look at limited profit housing and who lives there, you see that there's many households from, you could say, the lower but also the upper middle class living in this sector. So politically, I think um, it would be, well, it would be very, very difficult for any political party to get rid of the sector simply because such a large part of the constituency actually benefits in some way from the sector, right? Right. So... Uh, so there's there's this there's this important political element to it, I think, and uh, I mean the the other part of it is that uh, there is also perhaps I'm highlighting too much the Austrian case, but I think it's it's, it's an interesting case to look at. I mean, the other element here is so Vienna, for example, traditionally has a policy that has very high income limits uh, in social housing, and. Of course, part of this is that they want to have a broad political support for the sector, but they also want to have, uh, want to make sure that social housing is kind of not a, a segregated part of the housing market, mm-hmm. um, which is seen as the part of the housing market where just, yeah, where those that don't have money live, but they want to have it as a kind of proper part of the housing system. And just to make sure we're on the same page. Even though people with higher incomes can live in these units, it doesn't mean that they're paying the same rents necessarily, right? It, do rents tend to be more income-based or are they getting you know large subsidies despite their incomes? So they are not income-based at all, no. Okay. So they, no. So it doesn't matter how much you earn. The rent that you pay is only um, uh, is only dependent on the kind of unit you move into. And um, typically, it varies with the uh, with the age of the building. So, 
And is this true for both council housing and for limited profit housing? Because I can totally understand the limited profit housing because it's all based on cost of development anyway. It seems like a little harder case to make for council housing when, you know, some low-income households aren't living in this and have to pay, you know, or renting on the private market, for example, and yet you have higher income households paying way below market in these units. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that, that, that's, I think that's an, that's an interesting political uh, discussion to have. Uh, in Vienna, the situation is such that it is also in council housing the case that people, yeah, don't pay more or less mm. dependent on their income. There are, well, like every five or 10 years, there are these uh, political discussions about this that uh, someone says like, well, shouldn't we also check incomes regularly? <laughs> and then there's also these interesting estimations, for example, uh, th there was an interesting uh, study from the limited profit housing associations recently who kind of did this calculation and they calculated how much it would actually cost them to regularly check the income of people uh, because well there is a lot of privacy <laughs> issues here in 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 Austria people are very concerned about their privacy so it's not yeah. as simple to find out about uh, the income and then they said like well you know the benefits that they would kind of accrue from this would be so little compared to all the money that they have to invest to kind of regularly check this that they had a yeah pretty good case politically to say well this doesn't make so much sense yeah it just mm -hmm. uh, creates a lot of bureaucracy i was just having a, a conversation where a friend was complaining about the burden of doing income verification in subsidized housing in, in california but i think this point about the political popularity and you know the middle class is getting a big subsidy making this system politically popular is really important but also isn't it true that it's kind of part of like how germany has a export-oriented development policy that, that includes some kind of wage, indirect wage subsidies through the, the housing programs, right? Is that similar in Austria? Yeah, that's pretty similar in Austria. So that because I think that's a big part of how to understand the social housing sector uh, in in the Austrian case, that it was mm -hmm. actually a kind of also an economic policy, particularly in the 1950s and 60s, but also remained it to some extent. So the idea was that right. it does make sense to kind of in a very you could say Keynesian demand side idea of how you manage the economy to say, well, you know, we intervene in the housing market as a state and then make sure that housing costs are rather low there. But that also means that wage claims of the workers remain low and, yeah. uh, and with that, the, the economy kind of remains competitive internationally. And that was right. certainly an important part of uh, how, how the Austrian economy was run in the past, but I think also how it continues to be run uh, today. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and, and in that sense also explains some of the stability of the social housing policy here. But I'm, so I'm really curious about, because my understanding was that the, when, with the EU, you know, there's regulations, supranational regulations that prohibit, you know, subsidizing social housing associations unless they are directing their housing towards low income households. How did how did Austria navigate that? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting point here. So I think the, the the Dutch case is interesting here, and also the Swedish case. I mean, in my understanding, in the Dutch case, it yeah, actually Sweden just said. Sweden said we don't have any social housing anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and and the Dutch said, well, okay, we will just make it uh, make it smaller, right? I mean, what is interesting, right. I think, in both the Swedish and the Dutch cases, that in in both cases the 
this originated in a complaint by private landlord associations, right? Who were the mm -hmm. ones that ex mm -hmm. that kind of complained to the European Commission saying, well, you know, isn't this unfair competition? And that's interesting because yeah. in terms of kind of the competences, the formal competences that the European Union has, the, the European Union does not have a competence for social housing, right? Because there right. is the subsidiarity principle and housing policy is traditionally something that is regulated on the national level. But what is interesting then is that, of course, the you know, a European Union has a, a large competence in competition law, right? And so it right. was kind of through this detour of competition law that mm -hmm. the European Commission, in a case like the Netherlands, actually got active and then contributed to uh, to the, the, the size of the social housing sector being reduced uh, in the Dutch mm -hmm. case. I mean, I think that the Vienna case is interesting here because in Vienna, for example, we briefly talked about this before. When housing subsidies are granted, usually they are granted through the so-called uh, housing provider competition where mm. uh, housing providers have to kind of hand in their proposal with the city and then uh, the best proposal gets the subsidies. And this provider competition is actually also open for for-profit providers, right? So for-profit providers can also get subsidies. And, and through that, the city actually makes sure that this unfair competition is not uh, taking place here because uh, it's not the case that the social housing providers get subsidies and the for-profit providers don't get it. But mm. in principle, both can get it. But in reality, the for-profit providers are not, well, let's say they are not very um, successful in getting them because the quality standards, for example, that are defined through these provider competitions are quite high. And so it's quite hard, even with subsidies, to make a lot of money for for-profit providers. And in that sense, they say, well, you know, we can in principle get subsidies, but we can also just build without subsidies and then uh, right. yeah, um, get more profit. That's super interesting because in California, the majority of low-income housing tax credit projects are built by for-profits. So... It would be interesting to to dig into these two cases and see why the for profits here are are out competing the non profits, but not but not in Vienna. Very much so. Yeah, sounds fascinating. Well, I think this will have to be our last question here. But you know, one of the things you attribute the stability of Vienna and Helsinki's social housing to is their polycentric or divided governance, the multiple levels of government, which each have their own responsibilities and veto points in the housing market. So in Vienna, for example, the federal government passed a lot of the enabling legislation for social housing, and until recently, it also collected and redistributed a lot of housing taxes to lower-level governments. Vienna itself decides how these housing funds are allocated, and the city also owns a lot of the social housing directly. So there's, there's a benefit there because when one level of government, say the federal government, wants to sell off a bunch of social housing... The city can step in and say, no, we're, we're not going to allow this, maybe because they own it or they have some other kind of veto point. And you tell a story in the article about how that actually did happen in Vienna. The city stopped the sale of, of tens of thousands of units, at least. But I also think this has some downsides, though. And I'm thinking here about the U.S. and how unlikely it seems that we're going to get the alignment of city, state and federal governments that we would probably need to push social housing or public housing at a really meaningful scale. 
And if you can get that unity of purpose long enough to build up a sizable stock of social housing, then having the polycentricity seems like it can be useful for then preserving those programs against future losses or decline. But if you're thinking about how to get social housing programs started and then built up, yeah. it seems like maybe a unitary or centralized approach like our conversation about Singapore public housing several months ago might be more important. So I'm just curious, you know, as, as we close out here, how do you think about those two kind of competing claims? And to, to ask a much harder question, what should we do here in the U.S. to uh, <laughs> to get some social housing? Because we got a can, long way to go. <laughs> can I just add a small uh, additional question to that? I mean, I think because something that we sort of started with is like the motivation for action. And I think that if you think about, you know, you say, oh, well, in Helsinki, the you know, the local government owns most of the land. It's really easy for it to relatively easy for it to, to produce housing there. Um, in Vienna, there's all these limited profit associations. And, and in the beginning, I was very curious about kind of what is their motivation for action, why to, to grow especially, right? Because you can imagine that they would be motivated to maintain their stock and provide high quality housing, but to expand is really what, what we need to worry about yeah, here in yeah. California with social housing. It's maybe maybe a more straightforward question day, <laughs> or a little simpler. It, it does seem like there is, you know, the government does play a very big role in in pushing the growth. Um, but yeah, I mean, any insights on, on, on those two kind of motivating forces would be super useful. Thanks so much. Interesting points. I mean, to start with your, to start with your observation, Shane, I think it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very good point. And I think actually, I mean, we don't highlight this in the article, but I think if you look at Vienna historically and how the social housing stock came into being, it's exactly as you said, it did not start out as a kind of polycentric, mm -hmm. um, you know, super complex. It was Red Vienna. Policy endeavor. It was Red Vienna and it was a very, very local and a very, very, you could say, centralized um, program, right? Which was actually mm -hmm. very much operating in opposition to the federal government, which back then was dominated by conservatives and politically very much against the city building social housing, right? One of the things that kind of enabled social housing to kind of take off to such an incredible extent back then was actually the decision that the city became its own province and then through that was able to collect their own taxes, right? So the power to have their own tax revenues was very important in the Vienna case because what they did then with this is that they really taxed luxury goods and people, well, that owned a lot of luxury consumption goods, they just taxed them at a very, very high level and with, with very, very progressive taxes. And uh, so... It, it's a complicated story and there's more to tell about this, but to kind of to, to come back to what you said, I think it, it, it's, it's a very good observation that perhaps if you think about stability and what preserves an existing stock, then complexity is an important part of the story. But if you think about how to build up such a stock like you have in Vienna these days, uh, complexity is probably uh, not something that you that you want to have. <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe maybe something a little hopeful here is that at least for those of us in places like California, is in the same way that Vienna sort of went on its own and did something that the federal government wasn't supportive. I think a state the size of California and even c cities like Los Angeles have some of that power 
you know, we have limitations mm. by not being able to operate with budget deficits and those kinds of things. But there is a lot that we can potentially achieve, although, you know, maybe we have to also be thinking about whether we want to take this approach that we've been taking, which is subsidizing a very small number of units very deeply versus a, a different approach of trying to kind of spread things out a little bit more yeah. and, and have it account for a larger share of the housing stock. I do want to give you the chance, Justin, to, to kind of respond to Pavo's question about motivations as well, though. Can I just add one very quick uh, sure, thing sure. about this too? Um, because I think, I mean, I just want to add a little bit of complexity to, to, to my answer because I think, of course, kind of Red Vienna and, uh, you know, the municipal socialist experiments that Vienna had in the 1920s is an important kind of takeoff point for social housing. But I think there is also an important historical contingency that kind of the, the social housing stock expanded massively also after World War II. And that was also driven by the city, but it was also part of a national welfare state. The, mm -hmm. That kind of what we talked about before that had very different motivations in terms of policy motivations than the city had at the local level in the 1920s, right? It was much more about economic policy and about how to make the Austrian economy competitive in a kind of European and global competition. So I think that's another kind of historical contingency that, that's, that's important kind of to keep in mind, right? I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> it, it it's it's complex right and many things come together here right. but yeah. yeah yeah the other the other point about kind of motivation of providers right what makes them uh, provide social housing and especially also when it comes to limited profit housing associations what is their motivation mm -hmm. to grow right i think an important part of an important part of the story here is that you have to understand what the benefits, but also what the duties, so to say, of these limited profit housing associations are in terms of kind of how they are set up legally. And so what, what is important, for example, is that they are obliged to charge a certain rent, right? So they're only uh, allowed to charge cost rent, so the, the, the cost of, of a project, but they're also what kind of is kind of already indicated in their name. They're only allowed to make a limited profit. But uh, they are also, and that's important, um, they're also obliged to reinvest the money that they kind of earn through the operation of their projects after the little kind of, uh, or except uh, from the little profit that they make, they have to reinvest this into the provision of new units, right? So it's a kind of revolving fund mm. uh, model where mm -hmm. little can be taken out, right? And I mean, when I'm saying little to kind of just clarify what this means. So for example, the so uh, uh, right now it's at like 5% set uh, at a 5% level that uh, limited housing mm. profit associations. So if you have like, uh, for example, a bank that kind of owns a share of the limited housing profit association, and let's say they put in 100,000 units at some, uh, hundred, uh, sorry, 100,000 euros at some point, then every year they can get out 5% uh, of the but uh, mm -hmm. only of the 100,000 euros in nominal terms that they once put in. So let's say they put in 100,000 euros in the 1960s, mm. right? And then, yeah, they can get 5% interest on that today, but, you know, still on the value of 100,000 euros in the 1960s, right? It's, it's a very, very low amount that they get. And there are yeah. many limited profit housing associations that have decided that they don't even 
well, they don't even give this to the, to to the to the to those who would actually get it or who would have a right to get it because it's such a small amount, right? So it's right, it's really right. limited profit in that sense. Um, and uh, the other part of this is that the limited profit housing associations they are allowed to build up equity and they are also obliged to build up equity. That's a part of the rent that everyone pays who lives in in a project built by them. But then again, this equity needs to be reinvested into the provision of new units and i think through that mm. it's kind of uh, ensured that the sector remains stable or even grows in the future because yeah the associations need to do something with the money that they that they collect from rents thanks super interesting yeah it's a good it seems like a good lesson for you know regulate the things you want to see if you force them to reinvest that equity what else are they going to do with it other than build more housing right <laughs> Okay, well, Justin, uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for sticking around with us for so long. And thank you for coming on the Housing Voice podcast. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me. You can read more about Justin's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips and Pavo is at L. Pavo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.